0: Hello and welcome to the Her Voice podcast. I'm Kamel Caruso, your host and Chief Revenue Officer of HerMD. We're a female forward wellness center committed to empowering women through comprehensive health, beauty, and wellness services. As part of our mission to franchise HerMD locations nationwide, I talk to a lot of physicians who are interested in opening up their own practice. The most common questions I get are, how much will it cost? And quickly followed up by, how much can I expect to make? The answer to these questions are complicated, but here to help us break all of it down are Somi Javade, founder and CEO of HerMD, and Kathy Lai, our chief strategy officer. Somi is a board-certified OBGYN who opened her own practice in 2015 and has officially avoided the five-year curse for small businesses. Kathy has over 15 years of finance experience and has helped our practice optimize revenue, streamline costs, and set financial goals. So welcome, ladies. Hey. So, Somi, I know yeah. this week you had a milestone in your life that I will be experiencing this weekend also. Your oldest, Sean, graduated. So without getting too misty. <laughs> oh, my God. There's so many tears. <laughs> yeah. So
1: many tears.
0: Tell us a little bit about it. Because I saw the pictures, and you guys looked like even through all of this, it was you guys made the best fit and had a ton of fun.
1: We had so much fun. The advantage is he's never had a graduation before, so he's never experienced it. So I don't think he knows what he was missing. So it was really nice. We had this parade. So he goes to an all boys school and they organized this parade. And, and the night before we decorated the car and we put um, lawn signs out. And so when he came home, he was shocked. And uh, it was really fun for his sisters to do that. And the parade was overwhelming. It was all of his teachers. And we shot off confetti cannons from the top of the car. And he got to see his coaches. It was really nice. And he got to see his friends. And then later that day, uh, we met with a small group in a park and we got to take some pictures in really beautiful parts of Cincinnati, and that was a lot of fun. And that's when he said to me, got in his cap and gown, Mom, I finally feel like I'm graduating, right? Because they haven't been in school in two and a half months, and he finally got to see his friends. And then we did the graduation ceremony, which was, it was interesting. I mean, there were police force there, and there were people making sure everyone had masks and gloves, and Literally, it was uh, myself, my husband, Sean, obviously, um, his two sisters, and then the president and principal of the school, and then the person that announced the name. In this giant auditorium, you announce the name, and, you know, you walk across, and so and then we got to hug him. And I said, "Well, isn't that kind of better than sitting in a giant auditorium listening to three hours of names?" And we kind of chuckled about that, because, you know, you get right to yourself. You don't have to wait. But my favorite part are these apps that have been out. The one we used was called Vidhug. And we collected videos from everyone uh, that's been a part of his life. Old coaches, you guys, his old nanny, teachers, friends from other schools. And he cried. What was amazing about it, I told him, I said, if we would have had a huge graduation party, yes, it would have been fun. You don't have time to hear everyone's message and what they want to say to you by sitting in our family room, listening to this, he had the opportunity one-on-one to listen to what everyone wanted to say to him. And he recognized that gift. And he actually was very overwhelmed with emotion as was I. And that
0: actually was his favorite part of everything that he did. That's awesome. I'm in the middle of compiling the vid hug. And I have to say, it's pretty cool. I had Sonna's nursery teachers and they're, the nursery teacher and the kindergarten teacher are married, which is, like, really cute. They were the first ones to do the, the video message, and it was, I, I did watch that one, and it was really awesome. I, I think, like, what you said, like, seeing the people from, like, everywhere in their life and, like, from so long ago, like, wishing them well and congratulating them, I think it's going to mean a lot, and it's something they'll have forever, And that's um, what I told him, right?
1: Unlike a party, you would have videos and pictures, but you wouldn't remember all the words that everyone said to you. And they do a really nice job and compress it in like this 11, 12-minute video, and he'll have that forever. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's get into it, ladies. So we're talking about opening a new practice. When I'm talking to physicians about potentially opening a HRMD franchise, number one question I get is, how much is it going to cost me to open a practice? So let's talk about how much it costs to get started.
2: So I hate when people do this, but the answer is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many variables that go into opening your own practice. So it's really hard to just spit out a number or a range, but we can break it down into different buckets. Obviously, there is the cost of your office space and you have to decide, are you going to rent or are you going to buy? And obviously, the average rental retail rates differ a lot based on where your location is. But the national average is around $20 per square feet. So that means if you rent a 3,000 square feet space, it would cost you 3000 times $20, so $60,000 a year or $5,000 a month. And that's if you rent and then you have to be careful because different types of leases might require you to also pay property taxes and insurance costs and utilities if you buy on the other hand it will cost you a lot more upfront but you can likely get a mortgage to finance a majority of it when somi purchased her building Uh, She paid about $225 per square foot, which is obviously a lot more than 20, but she was able to get over 80% of that financed through a loan from the SBA, actually. So she got very favorable interest rates and terms. And what that ended up working out to be is her mortgage payments are about $13 per square foot per year. So ultimately, it ended up being a, a cost savings for her. And a lot
1: of people ask me, you know, why I chose to buy versus rent. And for me, I knew I was in it for the long haul. And I had been at a place before where the doctor um, who was renting our practice was kind of bought out and asked to leave. And I didn't want that to happen because I was already moving my practice. So I just wanted longevity. Uh, I knew it would be cheaper uh, in the long run because I looked at what you know, lease and rent prices were going for. And then because of my non-compete, which a lot of physicians will face, I had a very narrow area of the city, which I could practice in. And the area I was looking in didn't have anything that I um, needed for the price that I was looking for. And that's why I ended up buying, but I get that question all the time.
2: So the second bucket of major costs when you're opening up is obviously going to be medical equipment or devices. So show me what devices did you start with when you first opened?
1: So I went to a, a course as I had mentioned before on, you know, running a medical spa and the business aspect. And so I made a list of wants and needs and which services I was going to start with and which devices I really needed. I knew the body shaping market was huge. So I started with a few body shaping devices. And then I also started with a facial laser. And then I started with all of my surgical equipment, my surgical beds, everything that I needed for a surgery center and a gynecologic office. And an ultrasound machine as well, obviously, because as a gynecology office, you have to have that.
2: So the good news is that while medical equipment can be expensive, we found that we were able to finance all of them. A lot of times they'll even allow you to finance the full purchase price, including shipping, including tax. So $0 out the door up front. Um, And you can typically get a 60-month lease for those. You should expect that some of the lenders will request and require a personal guarantee. While it's no money out the door up front, it could have financial consequences for you individually down the road. What I'll also say is that you should be careful with the debt that you incur, because it can be very tempting to say, well, I want all these devices and it's Free to me up front, right? I don't have to pay for it right now. I just have my lease payments on an ongoing basis. And it's easy to get a little carried away and to stack up on too many devices. And so, what I would say is, as a rule of thumb for a small business, I would try to keep your total leverage less than two times your EBITDA. And EBITDA is a financial metric, it stands for earnings before interest taxes and depreciation and amortization. And that will help prevent you from getting overwhelmed by your lease payments going forward.
1: And I think my two tidbits to add with that looking from a physician's standpoint is anytime I look at a device, um, whatever that device is going to do, I think how many of these am I going to have to perform per month to make sure that I can even break even. So you have to think about that. So if a device is very expensive and you have to do 50 procedures a month just to cover it, it's obviously you're not gonna hit those numbers unless you already have a very large practice that's following you. So that's my first piece of advice. My second one, just like when you're going to finance a car, there will be multiple lenders that will give you the money for the devices. Some of the device companies have their own lending programs. And you'd be surprised how different they can be as far as interest rates you qualify for, but then also delayed payments. I was able to get a few of the lenders um, with a personal guarantee, and that will happen a lot when your business is new. Give me six to 12 months with no payments. Yes, I ended up paying more interest in the back end, obviously, because that accrued, what that helped me with was cash flow. And I know Kathy's going to get into that, but initially, you know, you don't get paid on day one with insurance systems. So that did help us a lot to manage our cash flow.
2: So the third bucket of costs that I think people underestimate is the cost of furniture and decor and supplies and inventory. So when you're first opening your doors, I mean, just treatment beds alone, right, can be very expensive. I mean, we just bought a new one Well, it was a new one for our office, but refurbished. But it could have easily been $10,000 for this chair. We were able to find it for about $3,500. But those types of expenses really do add up. So you have to buy treatment chairs for all of your treatment rooms. Office decor was obviously very important to us. Uh, but that included, you know, arch on the walls and mirrors, but it also included like spa robes because we wanted to give our patients nice, comfortable spa robes, as opposed to those kind of paper gowns that you see at other medical practices. And then you have to stock up on inventory too. So we have three skincare lines that we carry. We had to stock up on inventory for that. We had to stock up on inventory of all our medical supplies. So those things can really add up. And For us, we estimate that we initially spent about $50,000 on all of those supplies.
1: And with that too, I will tell you to shop around. I bought my decor at places like TJ Maxx and HomeGoods and Art.com. And if you sign up with a business account, you get even greater discounts. I hired an interior designer for $30 an hour. I sat with her for three hours and we shopped on Overstock.com and I furnished my entire office. This is non-medical equipment or chairs or beds for uh, just over $3,000. And so I saved myself, you know, $15,000, $16,000 just right off the bat with three hours of work.
2: So the next bucket of costs is obviously going to be payroll. And in terms of the number of staff that you will start with, we estimate that for every gin provider, so GYN, you probably will need two support staff. So one person to run the front desk and one person to serve as a medical assistant/slash nurse. And then we estimate for every esthetician, you would need about one support staff. And so, based on the number of providers you plan to start with, that will give you a sense for how many people you need to hire up front. And what we will say about payroll is you need to plan for about one month of payroll before you open, because they're going to be on your payroll. They're going to start taking appointments. They're going to start training on all the different things that they need to train on. So you need to be paying them during that period of time. And then for about three or four months after you open, as your revenue ramps up, especially because there's a long delay in collecting medical reimbursements, right? You have to plan to be able to cover payroll, Uh, during that period as well. And
1: my advice as a provider, everywhere where I try to save you money, I would say spend money on quality people. It makes a huge difference from your front desk staff who greet your patients who are professional, to your nurses, to your medical assistants. They work hard. They're invested in your company. And if you pay them what they are worth, um, that will give you such loyalty and such a better overall experience for your patients. And that's what they always say about our office. Also, it renders a lot less turnover. We have very little turnover in our office and people have stayed for a very long time because they're paid well, the office environment is positive, and they're happy. And patients say that they can feel that immediately when they walk in the door.
2: And then the last bucket of costs that I would call out is just services. Um, And in services, I'm going to include things like marketing and advertising, legal fees to get your legal entities set up and all your licenses in place and your tax IDs set up, things like that. In terms of marketing, you can refer back to our episode from last week about you know, marketing strategies and how much you need to spend when you're just starting out. But we had a very shoestring budget. I think we spent less than $5,000 on marketing. A lot of it was on that billboard that we put up near Somi's old office. And then the rest of it kind of came from word of mouth and people that we knew. For legal and advisory fees, that was about $10,000 for us just to get established. So I know in the beginning, of answering this question, I said, it really depends on the choices you make, but I kind of scoped out a hypothetical practice that wanted to rent out a 3,000 square foot office space. So rents for 3,000 square foot office space for about four months at $5,000 a month would be $20,000. Equipment leases, I assumed that we leased about $300,000 worth of equipment up front, And that would equate to about 6,000 of lease payments per month, covering that for about four months. That's $24,000. Another $50,000 spent on furniture and supplies. Then I assumed about two GIN providers. So six people on the payroll making on average $4,000 per person per month for four months. So that's $16,000 per person about $5,000 for marketing, about $10,000 for legal. And then I always like to include a contingency bucket for who knows what might come up. About 10% of our budget is spent on contingency. So that's $20,000. So all in, we're looking at startup costs, cash you would need to have in the bank of about $225,000 at a minimum. And to be safe, maybe up to $300,000. And so after you make this kind of initial
0: investment, and you open your own practice, you know, the next question I get is like, okay, I'm going to put this money in. How much will I make? What's going to be my ROI? Kathy and Somi, talk a little bit more about how much providers can expect to make once they open their doors.
2: Yeah, so I hate myself for saying this, but we also, (laughs) for legal and also, you know, practical reasons, we can't really provide a prediction for how much other practices stand to make. There's so many variables. But we can tell you what we generally make. And for us, we typically collect medical reimbursements of about $100,000 per day worked per week per physician. So what that means is if you have a gin and she is working five days a week, you would expect to collect about $500,000 a year in medical reimbursements for that GYN. And that sounds like a lot of money, but you have to remember that we use that money to then pay for the cost of devices, the cost of medical supplies, payroll for support staff and then office space, utilities, things like that. So we actually don't end up making a lot of money from our medical services. And part of the reason why that is, is because insurance reimbursement rates in female sexual health care are already low. Um, and we've discussed that at length that on other podcasts, but that's just a reflection of how the powers that be value our area of medicine. And then another reason why that is, is just by design. You know, we very deliberately set out to deliver exceptional healthcare for female patients. And that means spending more time with each patient. We spend 20 to 60 minutes with every patient that walks through the medical side of our practice. That may not make the best economic sense for us, but it's certainly a lot more fulfilling from a career perspective. This also explains why we decided to operate a full-blown medical spa within our practice as well cash flow from our medical spa side of our practice, as well as a handful of cash-based medical services. So we also do like testosterone pellets and vaginal Botox, all that goes to supplement our medical reimbursements and it keeps our entire practice afloat. So without disclosing our profit margins specifically, I'd say overall our profitability is comparable to what an experienced OBGYN would make at a hospital, but it's way more fulfilling yeah, so
1: I would agree, uh, you know, OBGYNs who are hospital employed, and I was there uh, for a long time, have seen their income, you know, go down because malpractice is higher. They're taking so much call. Um, so you're working harder and harder to make the same amount of money. You do get paid for deliveries, but it, the cost is lifestyle. I was on call all the time. When you look at gynecology-only salaries, which I was a GYN-only at a hospital-based system, my salary was so much lower than the general public thinks. Gynecology-only is not very profitable, and actually owning a MD would uh, be a lot more profitable for someone who is practicing gynecology only because you do have that med spa revenue because you do have, you know, the surgical center revenue and because you are collecting your own ultrasound revenue, as opposed to, you know, when you order an ultrasound at a hospital, the patient gets the ultrasound, but then the hospital keeps that money. And so there are a lot more ways for you to make money and I don't have nearly the amount of call or having to go in in the middle of the night that I did when I was employed by a hospital. And I have independence, which is what everyone's craving. I control my own schedule. I control the amount of time that I want off and I control the amount of time I'm gonna spend with patients. I don't have hospital administrators saying, no, 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 you have to see patients in 15 minutes and we have to keep this going and you have to see a minimum of this many patients. I don't have anyone doing that. And it is a blissful experience for me to have gained my independence back to practice the medicine that I want to. And the patients even say to me, Dr. Javade, you feel so much more relaxed now that you're in your own space and so much more comfortable
0: um, now that you're practicing medicine the way that you want. So we did talk a lot about the medical spa and the benefits of having it in the office as a provider. And I think a lot of people value the medical spa because of its convenience and safety, but don't realize that financial role, it really plays in the practice. We touched upon it a little bit, but when it comes to medical aesthetics, it also seems that there are just so many devices available So which ones do you recommend uh, a provider invest in initially?
2: So when it comes to leasing medical devices, this is an area where you want to do a ton of research and not necessarily just buy the shiny new thing that's on the market. So we definitely recommend speaking to other physicians and other providers who have used the device for multiple years. Once you have identified a device that you want to purchase, Somi touched on it a little bit, before when she talked through her thinking of like, okay, how many procedures do I have to do in order to get paid back? But what she meant by that is we look at how much revenue we can expect to generate from the device. So how many procedures do we expect to make or perform a month and how much revenue that will bring in. But you also have to think about the cost side of it, right? And I think a lot of physicians maybe overlook that half of the equation. There are a lot of costs to operating a device. So for example, costs, include labor. You have to have somebody there operating the machine and treating the patient. But we also have marketing costs, right? Every time we get a new device, we wanna push that out to our community and let them know that we have it there now for them and that will drive up marketing costs. There's also disposables that come with almost every device. So for example, on CoolSculpting, every time we perform a CoolSculpting cycle, We have to pay Allergan a cost for their CoolSculpting card, and that is a disposable. Every time we perform the service, we have to pay that. Then there's also interest expense on your lease, right? And then installation costs. Sometimes you need to install a new outlet. Sometimes you have to create more space for a device. So all of that should go into an equation that we then use to calculate what I call payback period, right? So how long, how many months is it going to take based on your expected revenue and your expected costs to pay back the cost of that device? And I try to keep that payback period to under two years, even though the lease for your devices will generally lasts for five years. I like to get paid back for our devices under two years. And the reason for that is a lot of devices will become hot when they first hit the market. You're going to be the first one in your area to have a cool sculpting machine or have a hydrofacial machine. And then over time, competition is going to catch up and you're going to see that impacts the economics of having that device. So I like to get that payback within the first two years while the device is still hot. And then everything else after two years is just profit. I think
1: the one other thing, you know, Kathy touched on is everyone who tries to sell you a device will tell you it works. The results are amazing. So you can talk to what are KOLs, key opinion leaders. And I happen to be a KOL for a few different companies, but talk to KOLs, talk to the physicians. They'll give you an honest experience of what they have seen in their patient population read the studies a lot of these companies have invested in studies and be able to see whether or not those were good studies as professionals and providers we're used to reading medical data the third thing i would say is well how are you going to get patient perspective right you can't ask another physician to talk to their patients real self is like the trip advisor to travel real self is uh to cosmetic procedures And so you want to look at real self percentage rates. And I typically will not look at a device if it has less than a 90% approval rating or a 90% score, because that tells me that despite the data and despite what the physician may have told me and what the company is telling me, in real life, patients are not experiencing good results. And so that's another safety check that you can make. It's kind of like checking references. And you want to look at the device From everyone's point of view,
2: this is a huge benefit to partnering with HerMD that we like to highlight with physicians because SOMI has done all the research on all the devices that we use. We know what we like, we know what we don't like. You know, unfortunately for us, we've made some mistakes along the way, but the benefit to you is that we've learned from those mistakes and we can pass along that knowledge to you. We've also leveraged SOMI's KOL status to negotiate grid discounts on our favorite devices. So I think that's a huge benefit to her MD partners.
0: I agree. And a lot of the research that we've done, and there's a couple of things that we've learned for sure over you know the last several years. And a lot of things I've learned in terms of marketing those new devices. But another thing going back to research is understanding you know, your demographics and what devices and what services they'd be interested in, because every patient population can be different, especially across different parts of the country. So keeping that in mind, and then also first mover advantage, like making sure you're up to date and doing your research on medical devices or medical aesthetic devices and what's new and taking those meetings to understand because once you get a patient in to your office and you have this new service and you're one of the only ones in your area to provide it, they're very much likely to stick with you as well as other people maybe later on start to get that, that same device. And so, those are two really important things that I think to keep in mind.
1: And I think the other thing, uh, the other advantage with her MD is a lot of it is how you approach. The patient and how you counsel the patient my goal is to empower and educate and for women to feel really good and i have been to places where you have high pressure sales right like car places or certain stores and i've walked right out and i have always told my staff and it's the her md way that we want women to feel empowered and really good about their choice and if they don't want the procedure then that's fine. They don't have to have it and they don't need it. And we allow patients to, you know, decide what they want, what they need to feel better about themselves, if anything. And it really has rendered that 90% crossover. And what patients love is that there's no high pressure because that's what, you know, we're not about that at HerMD. The other thing is always under promise and be realistic with people's expectations. Don't tell a patient she's a candidate for a device just to collect dollars. That's not the way that you do things and set up realistic expectations. You know, I tell patients, for example, with the vaginal laser, you know, I hate the word vaginal rejuvenation. We've talked about that. It's a CO2 laser. It's what surgeons use. We use it to treat painful sex and dryness. And, you know, we did research and published a poster on treating a dermatologic condition. But, you know, I was joking with a patient the other day, you know, she's 60 and she wanted to have the laser for urinary incontinence and some painful sex. And I said, well, listen, you're not going to walk out of here with a 25 year old vagina, you know, and she started laughing. And I said, you know, but if she went somewhere else, they might've told her that. And so you have to set up realistic expectations and patients will forever be loyal and appreciate
0: the honesty and the transparency you have with them. Kathy, you also mentioned a little bit earlier, I want to circle back to that, a payback period. So if a physician does not have a finance background, what are some of the other metrics they should be tracking to make sure the practice is succeeding?
2: Yeah, so you definitely don't need a CPA to be able to understand finances and to manage your company responsibly. I would say first and foremost, you want to obtain at least some basic financial literacy. You should understand terms like revenue and profit and EBITDA and balance sheet and assets and liabilities. That terminology can probably be obtained within one or two days if you take an online course and I think that's what Somi did when she first started she took a one-day course but nowadays you can get like really good high quality courses crash courses on financial literacy on sites like Udemy or Teachable um, or even YouTube so I would say that's step one and then step two is to hire somebody who can help you not only close your books but also will take the time to explain to you how things are going explain trend lines help you create a budget for the year and that person could be a very experienced practice manager a bookkeeper an accountant but just somebody who's going to take the time to keep you apprised of how things are going and then the third thing i would say is on a regular basis at least for us we basically track two to three metrics And that's it. And if you could only see those two or three metrics, I would know enough information to assess whether or not the company is performing well, or uh, below plan or above plan. So the three metrics for us that we look at are credit card receipts. So an overwhelming majority of our medical aesthetic sales goes through credit cards. But we also have some cash-based medical procedures that also go through credit cards. And what we do with the credit card receipts is we know what our annual target for those receipts are, and we just take that annual target divided by 50 weeks a year, uh, so that we account for holidays and days where our office is closed, and then we divide by five days a week. And so if I look at my daily credit card receipts and I'm above, at, or below that daily target, then I know that our practice is doing well, medium or below plan. The other metric that we look at on a daily basis is medical reimbursement receipts. So obviously, the the number that you bill to insurance companies is going to be much different than what they ultimately end up paying, so we only look at the medical reimbursements that we actually receive in our bank accounts. And again, we're taking our annual target for that number, dividing it by 52 weeks a year because we do collect medical reimbursements even when our practice is closed. And then we divide that by six days a week because we do get some medical reimbursements on Saturdays as well. What I will say about medical reimbursements is that they're very lumpy. Like some days we'll get $100. Some days we'll get thousands of dollars. So we do track this every day, but I like to look at like weekly averages and monthly averages to get a really good sense of how we're doing on that front. And then the last metric that we look at daily is liquidity. So liquidity may not just be the cash that you have in your checking account. It also includes like how much availability do you have on your credit cards? how much availability you have on your line of credit if you have a line of credit so all that adds to like liquidity which is basically if you had to summon a big pile of cash today to pay for a bunch of stuff like how much cash could you get to pay for things on short order and liquidity will fluctuate right just like medical reimbursements your liquidity will fluctuate ours fluctuates a lot around our pay periods So we pay um, our employees every two weeks and right before our payroll, we'll have a lot of liquidity and right after we'll have much less. I kind of equate it to like your period, you know, your your (laughs) hormone levels and your mood fluctuates a lot during the month. (laughs) You know exactly on the 15th of every month how you should be feeling and maybe how much you should weigh at that point in time. So instead of like freaking out because you gained five pounds before your period, You know what's normal for your business and just gauge your liquidity off of that. So we take these three metrics and we put it into a spreadsheet. We track it daily, but then we calculate weekly averages and monthly averages to make sure everything's going as it should be.
1: So I have to circle back to something that Kathy referred to, and it was, you know, either hiring a practice manager, which I did have from day one, because I wanted to spend my time seeing patients and growing the business, you know, or a bookkeeper or an accountant. But I was with Kathy at a conference, and we were introducing the MD business model to a lot of physicians, and they would come back to me and having a Kathy became a verb. They're like, well, how do I get a Kathy? How do I have a Kathy? And I was like, well, you become part of her MD. But I thought that was <laughs> such a good um, tribute to Kathy and how smart she is. So make sure, if even if you don't become a part of her MD, that you find someone that has financial literacy. Um, I'm not giving up my Kathy anytime soon, so. Uh, <laughs> You'll have to join us at her
0: MD to have a Kathy. I also have to circle back to Kathy that that analogy you gave about being on your period. I think and the, I think that's amazing. Like that's going to stick. Like that's going to stick with people. Like people will remember that. So, any other parting advice for physicians you have who are thinking about taking you know the leap and opening their own practice, and hopefully it's a her MD.
2: Yeah, so a few things I would say. Look, starting any business is going to be inherently risky. 20% of new businesses fail within their first year and 50% of new businesses fail within five years. But there are things that you can do to make sure that you don't become a statistic and things that you can do to limit your risk. So one of the first things that you should think about is whether or not you want to find a partner. So if $225,000 or $300,000 is more than you have in capital to invest in your business, it is possible to find a partner who can help shoulder some of that risk with you. And you have to be a little careful because there are state-by-state corporate practice of medicine laws that do prohibit people who are not board-certified physicians or nurses from owning medical practices. But there are other ways to take on a partner. Like that partner can make you alone. That partner can sit on your board. That partner can be your Kathy, right, and help you run your practice. So think about whether or not it makes sense for you to find a partner. And I will tell you that entrepreneurship is one of the loneliest journeys if you try to do it alone, because there's so many peaks and troughs and, and things that you go through. It's an emotional roller coaster. And it's just easier if you have somebody who's going through it with you. The other thing I'll say is what I've learned about being an entrepreneur is that I think the three of us all are relatively stingy, which is can be a very good thing, right? Like we love to buy refurbished furniture because we know it'll save us $7500 and that's like a huge win for us and we never splurge on crazy things. However, what I've learned about myself is I have to let go of that feeling sometimes of trying to save every last penny because you do have to spend money to make money. If there's a new machine and you're never going to know 100% whether or not it's going to work out, but it has really good prospects and you want to get first mover advantage. Like you have to make that investment and see if it'll work out. And so I, I do feel like sometimes you can err too much on being risk adverse and never take the risk that you need in order to be successful. So what I will say to counter that is know that your medical training will always be your safety net. Like when I told my mom that I was going to quit my 10-year career in investment banking to go work for a company and make $0 for three years, she freaked out initially. But I told her like, my MBA is my safety net. My education is my safety net. Like I'm always going to be employable. I'm always going to be able to make some sort of income. So worse comes worse, if things don't work out, you always have that safety net there and that should embolden you to take more bets on yourself. And if you're ever gonna take a bet in your career, you should bet on yourself. I
1: love that piece of advice, Uh, bet on yourself. Why bet on anyone else? And I think for me, I was tired of working for the man. And I was like, if I'm gonna work this hard, I'm gonna work for myself uh, and on my terms and the way that I wanna do it. And I think the other piece of advice is work with an established brand. It's a lot easier to open something with a franchise or under another umbrella. And I've had some physicians say, well, I don't want another boss. But I explained to them, it's not having another boss. You're going to practice medicine the way that you want. You know, there's definitely algorithms of care and services we want you to offer, but not everyone has to offer what the HerMD Cincinnati or the flagship location offers. And especially if your budget doesn't allow you to have as many machines as we do well, we're going on our sixth year, so we're going to be a lot busier and offer a lot more um, services. But that doesn't mean that you can slowly grow as your profitability
0: grows. Well, thank you, ladies. This was really enlightening. There was a lot of good information in here. I certainly am. I'm still learning every day. I learned some things today, which is awesome. So, thank you again.
2: This episode of Her Voice has been a production of HerMD, a female forward wellness center in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can follow HerMD on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerMD Health, and sign up for our newsletter at HerMDHealth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends. They can listen to us on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're a healthcare provider who is interested in opening a HerMD location, or if you already have your own practice and you'd like to be powered by HerMD, reach out to us at info at HerMDHealth.com.